You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi everyone, CJ here. Welcome to episode 151 of the Dangerous History Podcast. In this episode, I have an extended conversation with a listener named Mike K, who has extensive experience both in real-world experience and in doing research on the topic of education in general and specifically the challenges of education in American inner-city schools. So it's a very wide-ranging and kind of relaxed conversation that touches on a lot of topics, including Mike and myself trading anecdotes and stories and observations from our different experiences and perspectives in teaching. So I think you'll enjoy it, but before we get to that, I do have three excellent individuals to thank who've signed up just in the past few days since I published episode 150 to be Scholar Warrior supporters of the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon. So big thanks go to Beth, Scott, and Travis. Thank you all very much for helping to support the Dangerous History Podcast. And just as a reminder to all of you, if you support the Dangerous History Podcast at patreon.com slash profcj at $5 per month or more, you will get access to bonus episodes that are available there and nowhere else, and you will get regular DHP episodes early and without any of these sorts of ads or commercials or anything like that in them, and you will also have the opportunity, should you so choose, to join the Dangerous History Podcast private Facebook group. So I hope you all listening will consider, likewise, stepping up to help support the work I do here at the Dangerous History Podcast. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Mike Kay about education in America. All right, so I'm happy today to be talking to a listener named Mike Kay, who um, contacted me to, to see if I'd be interested in having him on for a Dangerous History podcast episode to discuss uh, his area of expertise that relates to some of the sorts of themes we cover on this show. 
And, um, I'm always interested to talk to listeners who, who have, you know, some, some amount of expertise in something that relates to the types of stuff that we cover here on this show. So, uh, Mike, welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for having me, CJ. How you doing today? Oh, I'm glad it's Friday as we're recording this. Let me tell you, it's been a heck of a week. Me too. And, you know, one of the dangers of podcasting, of course, is you'll say it's Friday and the episode will drop on, what, Wednesday? Um, yeah, actually, probably <laughs> something like that. But that's... but every Friday is a good Friday. So yes. there we go. Yes. <laughs> well, um, you uh, reached out to me and, and said that, um, you know, you could you could talk on the subject, particularly of inner city schools and then kind of like American uh, schooling more generally, I guess. So to kind of get us started off, would you mind sharing your your backstory, your CV, uh, as much as as you want to share in, in terms of, you know, relating to this subject and kind of your own your own personal journey on all this? Well, uh, after I actually served in the military and after serving in the military, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. And I went ahead and, and got certified through some alternative licensure programs, which we'll probably end up talking about a little bit later. And uh, took a job in an inner city school uh, in a mid-sized city, about, about 150,000, 200,000 people. Went through that whole process, was very successful at it. Went ahead and got my national board certification, which is a master teacher certification. Uh, got my master's degree in educational uh, instructional technology, uh, an MED in instructional technology. And then I actually went and finished my uh, doctorate and just recently completed that last year. And my dissertation work specifically was effective inner city education. And of course, to identify what's effective, you have to uh, identify what's ineffective. So that's kind of the area I pretty much specialize in. I, I currently work for a large technology corporation developing educational tools for them. So that's my quick overview CV. Uh, what, what was your experience actually in teaching like? Well, it's, it's the story of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, kids are kids. Regardless of where they come from, they do kid things. I taught mostly middle and high schoolers kind of a 50-50 spread there in a magnet school that that specifically targeted inner city uh, children at risk is the term they use, uh, 96% free or reduced lunch. And, and the kids were great. They did very well on those, those standardized tests that we all hate. And the parents are the parents. You get what you get, and, and you can't expect to change those folks. So as a teacher, I would reach out to uh, that adult who could touch the child. So it may not be a parent, but, but you can figure that out. Um, administrator, I, I started off with an old school principal who was a uh, had an attitude that, you know, you let teachers teach, and his job was to protect his teachers from the administrators. And once he retired, then we were no longer protected. And I then understood what it is that teachers complain about when they say, I love kids, I don't mind the parents. And it's the grownups that drove me out of education. So and so after 10 years uh, and and uh, fantastic scores, I went ahead and decided to go pursue a uh, job opportunities in the private sector. In terms of your experience, did you find that inner city schools are really like qualitatively different than kind of regular run of the mill public schools? Or is it just that certain 
things that are present in in kind of, you know, run-of-the-mill public schools that are maybe kind of negative things are just like simply amplified a lot more in inner-city schools? That's an excellent question. Um, inner-city schools are different, and they have to be different, and, and I'm hoping you'll uh, give me some time to talk about that. You're dealing with a different population, uh, and culturally – those students learn differently than mainstream students would learn. Uh, and they, and they require different needs than mainstream students do. Um, so, so the school itself is radically different. And then if you move into the teacher side, since inner city schools are the least desirable schools for teachers, the more experienced teachers do everything they can, most of them, not all of them to get out of the schools. And this is not anecdotal, CJ. There's actually evidence that supports what I'm saying. So a lot of teachers, once they get past that five, 10-year mark and they have enough experience and seniority they can move, they'll move to a more suburban school because they don't want to deal with the challenges of inner city education. For example, uh, if, if you don't like to be called bad names, you're not going to cut it in inner city schools. I've been called everything that you can imagine I've been told to F off. I've been told what a horrible human being I am. Uh, but oftentimes you just have to, you know, intellectually you have to step back and say, this is an adolescent who hasn't learned to deal with their emotions and they don't mean it personally or you're not to take it personally. It's just their way of lashing back out. But a lot of adults just cannot deal with that kind of behavior. And, you know, the more, controversial thing I'm going to say is a lot of teachers are they they are females from what looks like regular America and they are not always equipped to deal with that kind of population uh, and when I talk about that population specifically we're talking about uh, young people who come from broken homes oftentimes single family homes uh, one or the other parent is incarcerated uh, fathers have oftentimes been driven out of the family. I've, I've spoken to many fathers who were trying to get back in their children's lives and couldn't get back in. Uh, they may not always eat. They come to school hungry. They come to school in the same clothes they wore yesterday. They don't have school supplies. It's, it's a litany of, of uh, challenges that these young people face. And then, honestly, I don't think they're well served by the public school system. Hmm. Well, um, I guess let's jump the needle back. Before the Civil War, we do have some of like the early phases of it. We've got, you know, Horace Mann and those sorts of characters. But before the Civil War, a lot of it was still very decentralized, very localized. You know, a lot of it was still very different from what we're used to uh, thinking of public school as today. But it seems like after the Civil War, though, things kind of took off more on the trajectory towards what we know today, at least moving in that direction. So what's your, your take on kind of like the backstory of American public schooling? Well, I, I agree that in the antebellum period, we had, I always call them local schools or community schools where people banded together and decide they were going to hire someone to teach your children. Uh, and, th and that exists post-Civil uh, War for a while, uh, certainly in the West. But then you have the reformers from New England uh, who thought that the way to prevent another civil war was to come in and, and publicize or create public schools where they could control uh, the curriculum. Historically, we, we both know that this is not unheard of, but a lot of teachers came into the South with the specific idea that they were going to teach those 
you know the terms, the ignorant, whatever, rednecks and the rebels and whatever. Uh, and of course, some of them are, I'm not, I'm not attacking their, their motivations. I think a lot of them were very motivated to teach slave, uh, freed slave children or, or rural Southerners. Uh, but I always say whatever starts in the South tends to move its way up North. So eventually, mm. eventually, you know, you have public schools cropping up here and there. Then some of those New England states turn to, uh, have more and more oversight over how the public education system is, is moving forward. Then you have John Dewey come in with the, the major reforms towards those Prussian systems, uh, where we sort children by manufacturer date and we engage in what I love to call state sponsored child abuse. So uh, we lock boys up in rooms, make them sit in little desks, and, and we create little good automatons to go out and work in our factories, which is always interesting to me because, CJ, that system doesn't exist anymore. There are no factories to send them off to. So uh, yeah. it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spiral. And, of course, you know, you have the separate but equal system that existed not just in the South but across many of the, of the states in the United States until the late 50s, early 60s. Um, where, you know, black schools were being funded at a tenth of what white schools were being funded at. And so black children were not getting the, they may or may not have been getting the supplies they need. Oftentimes they had relatively good teachers because it was, those were jobs that black professionals could get into relatively, uh, you know, without, without the huge hindrance of discrimination. But I, I actually taught in a formerly all black school building. And I, my classroom was a library, and the library in that school was probably 17 by 17 feet. So <laughs> imagine a school library that small. So th that tells you what the challenges were in those, in those schools. So, you know, we had this huge movement in, in the 50s and 60s in the South to desegregate schools um, that crept north uh, into New England. And, and when I was a young guy, I remember the riots in Boston when they desegregated Boston schools and bus students there. Um, and so it it did cause some mixing of populations. And then as white flight started to happen in the late 60s, then the tax base started to move out. And and, and white flight is a I think it's a misnomer. I think it was middle middle class flight. Um, so so middle class families moved into the suburbs. And so, of course, now the tax base has eroded and inner city schools are once again pretty much segregated. Um, and we in the industry, well, in the. In the educational field, we call that resegregation, which has occurred pretty much since the late nineties. Yeah. Well, um, so, so you had a brief period of desegregation where the, the legal segregation was being undone. And then there was a little bit beyond that in terms of like busing and things like that. But then very quickly there was, even though there was no more de jure, uh, segregation, it quickly turned into de facto segregation is what you're saying. Absolutely. And, and it exists today. Um, it, it's not the segregation where middle class uh, minority students are being kept out of those middle class schools. That's not happening. Uh, but um, since a not a majority, but since a large minority of our, our students are, well, a large minority of poor students are uh, people of color. So yes, it is, it is, it is de facto segregation. In your research and your experience, um, did you ever come across anything having to do with, are there, are there significant differences between the way that a poor urban school functions and the problems it has 
as compared to a poor rural school? Because it seems like there, there's poverty out in, out in a lot of rural areas in this country too. And, you know, those students are going to school somewhere. And, you know, we always hear about the problems of the, the inner city schools. We don't hear as much about the problems of the impoverished, um, rural schools, but I would imagine they still have, they have a lot of issues. Do you, no, do you... they face, they face exactly the same challenges. And, and I, I spoke to this in my own research at length. Rural schools don't face exactly the same challenges, but academically those students do. Uh, and we have multiple issues that are occurring here. When you start talking lower income students, their, their parents aren't reading books to them. Uh, the biggest single determination, determining factor in a um, child's life is the educational level of his parent, his mother specifically, uh, whether she reads to him or not, and the expectations his family has for him. And I, I use he because he, mostly we're talking males that tend to get really left behind. Uh, some quick numbers for you. 70% of all special needs students are males. A black young man is more likely to be special needs than any other subgroup in American education. And, and you're dealing with much of the same population in, in rural America where you have minorities and additionally you have poor white children who are suffering from, in the same types of environment that poor black children are suffering in. So, uh, yes, it, it, it's right there, lockstep. Um, you're not dealing with as much violence as inner city students are dealing with, but there are other factors that now we, you know, that are coming into those schools. Uh, easier access to drugs maybe in some cases and some other things. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was, I was gonna, I was gonna say that seems to be a big development of like the last few decades is that, uh, many types of drugs have become a lot more ubiquitous in, in rural and small town areas when they used to only be kind of a thing in the bigger cities. You know, we think about all, all that we hear ab about the, um, opioid stuff, the, the heroin epidemic. Uh, of course, meth has been a big thing out in the rural areas for a while. And of course, you know, you and I, I'm sure are, are both for, for legalizing things and ending the war on drugs and all that, but, you know, there's still the social problem of the drugs themselves, right? And a parent who's who's addicted to meth in a bad way or whatever is still going to end up having a child who's going to have a lot of issues to deal with. Oh, I, I agree. And I am a former drug warrior, and I, I apologize for that. You know, the issues we have, and just a quick aside, you know, we're talking about the current opioid epidemic, uh, but we haven't connected that to the fact that American soldiers are guarding poppy fields in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So, you know, there's this whole disconnect here. And of course, now it's no longer illegal opioids. It's, it's what you're getting across the counter from your physician. Uh, and uh, so you, you not only have illegal drugs coming into schools, but there's a significant number of children who are coming into schools and they're drugged walking in the door and they go to the nurse to get their drugs in the middle of the day and they leave at the end of the day and, and, and have been drugged all day in school. Um, and I, my personal feeling on this is that we are treating boys in these schools like dysfunctional girls. And the way we deal with the issue is we give them a cocktail of drugs so they'll act like girls. And, and, and I'm not speaking ill of female students, but they'll sit still and they'll do their work. And that's not the way that boys and some girls learn. And, and so, <laughs> uh, and, and understanding what I mentioned earlier, where a significant 
significantly larger percentage of minority children and, and poor children, uh, not necessarily even minority, but poor children are designated as special needs, then what are we doing? We're giving them drugs. And so uh, you have illegal drug influences and you have the legal drug influence in the classroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and, and not to climb. Well, I already have. I've already climbed on my soapbox. So I apologize to, to all your faithful listeners. This is what I mean when I talk about state-sponsored child abuse. We, we have given teachers the power to fill out a form, send it to the doctor, and say, this child needs to be evaluated for ADHD or whatever the, the current trend is in education. Uh, and, and I was no more qualified to make that diagnosis than I was when I was working as an electrician. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's... it's Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it <laughs> seems like that that uh, students who are children of you know lower class parents who are not as educated and not as um what's the word I'm looking for not as used to kind of pushing back against perceived authority figures, right? Like if an upper middle class parent's child is is being, you know, potentially labeled with something, the upper middle class parent is more likely to question that, to maybe push back and resist, whereas it, it seems like in general the lower class parent would be more likely to defer to the perceived authority figure, whether it's a doctor or a teacher or an administrator or what have you. Oh, I, I agree. I think I think what's happening and, and I can tell you from my own experience that most of the, the most of the parents I dealt with were wonderful. They were supportive. You know, this story where the parents come in and, and fuss at the teacher because they gave Johnny a bad grade. I really didn't experience that in 10 years. Uh, generally, I got parents who came in the door and they may not be as educated. And, and the word I use is savvy. They may not always be as savvy uh, about the system, but they do want to support their kids. So they come into they used to come into my classroom and say, how can I help you teach my son? And. You know, simple things, uh, checking homework, they were only willing to do. But if you go into an IEP, an individualized evaluation plan for a student's special needs, you go into that IEP meeting, that parent is out of their, their comfort zone. And if a teacher's in that meeting that does not want to advocate for that child, then there's, there's a social worker. But do we really think that publicly hired social worker is advocating for the child? Some are, some aren't. Let's just leave it at that. Right. So. Yeah. 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 Some, some are honestly trying to do the best they can, but it's, it's kind of a messed up uh, situation and a messed up system. So, um, good, good individuals doing their best can only, can only take you so far. And of course, not everyone even fits that, that description by far. Well, what's your, your overall take on why in particular, um, inner city schools continue to be, uh, so problematic. I mean, I don't know. Have you ever watched the TV series The Wire from HBO from like ten years ago? I, I lived in that area for a while, um, and, and you know, the flip answer was I lived it right, but that's not really true. I did. I did watch a bit of it, and um, that's realistic as far as the, the pictures of the neighborhoods. In my experience, um, maybe not the high degree of criminality because mm-hmm. obviously that's Hollywood, but. Yeah. But there are a lot of broken neighborhoods in America, and, sure. and those kids that grow up in those neighborhoods don't have a large political base. Uh, and, and that's the unfortunate thing about public schooling is, you know, it's politicians that run public schools. And so 
people that are lawyers, and, and let's just be honest, people who are lawyers make decisions about what's best to educate children who have no advocate. So, uh, and, and, you know, if you want to go down the rabbit hole of NCLB, uh, we can certainly hit that rabbit hole. Um, well, we, we can get to that in a minute, but like if, <laughs> if you had to kind of put it all together, what a part a, what does it mean to say that inner city schools in America are failing and B, kind of what's the holistic picture of, of all that's going on there? The so-called education gap is narrowing. Uh, you, you, you know, that's, that's reality, but it's narrowing due to two factors. Uh, one is we're throwing a lot of money at it, pop, taxpayer money at the, at the gap. Uh, and you know, a, a, even a blind squirrel gets a nut once in a while. Uh, if you throw enough money, you can hire enough decent teachers. You might get the right interventions that work for kids. But the second factor that no one talks about is overall test scores are declining for everyone. So uh, what we have is is another system breaking. So it looks like the broken system is not doing as badly as it used to be doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so you're basically you're saying that white middle class suburban students are declining. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. that this makes the the inner city impoverished minority students seem to be doing relatively less bad. That that's correct. And the biggest achievement gap that we don't talk about in our, for lack of a better word, country, uh, or, or in our states, is the achievement gap between white middle class students and white upper income students. That gap is even more significant than the gap between middle class and and low income families. And we just, that's okay because we know those kids are going to private schools. Those upper, upper income kids are going to private schools. And so we expect them to have better scores, but we don't sit back and analyze that and say, maybe what's working for those upper income kids would work for middle and lower income kids. Hmm. Um, yeah. That, that sounds a bit like, uh, John Taylor Gatto, who I'm sure you're very familiar with. I am. I am. Uh, he and Neil Postman who wrote, uh, Teaching uh, the book about teaching being a, a subversive act were big influences on me. So, um, yeah, that, and that, ar on. that argument that, uh, you know, you can take some of the strategies that are actually used at like elite prep schools and then, you know, bring them into a school in Harlem and they'll actually work. And, and there are schools that are proving that. And, and some people may disagree with their methods, but the KIPP academies are, 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 are uh, doing better than average uh, and their graduation rates are significantly higher and KIPP academies are funded with public dollars. We can't dispute that, but they're being run like private schools. Uh, the school I taught in was, was based on that model. And I would argue that in the time frame of about 2003 till about 2013, that school could stand toe to toe with any school in the Commonwealth here uh, and, and compete head on with middle, middle income, uh, and, and some lower upper income schools in the rest of the, in the rest of the state. So, uh, that, that idea works. Uh, the Harlem, I can't, there's an academy in Harlem. Um, its name has slipped my mind, but their scores are, are, are rivaling, uh, some of the best schools in the city, but they're requiring different things from the teachers. I don't, I don't know if you're aware of what they're doing. No, not exactly. 
teachers are working more hours in those schools. Teachers are taking more time to have relationships with students. Uh, students tend to be there um, more hours in the day, so they have more contact time with teachers. That also leads to um, perhaps a bit more un of, of unstructured time. Some of the most important teaching, and, and you know this as an educator yourself, some of the most important um, teaching that goes on happens after class. Absolutely. When, when the students are sitting around your desk and, and they're just asking you questions or in the morning before school starts and they're sitting in your, in your classroom asking you questions. And so because those teachers are not shooting out the door, and I'm not I'm not trying to pick on, on regular school teachers, but because those teachers aren't shooting out the door to go home and grade the 265 papers they have to grade before tomorrow morning, uh, they're able to have relationships with students. And that's how those schools are succeeding. Is And, and my research indicates this, by the way, is teachers that are seen as parental authority figures by the students get the performance from those students that kids who grew up in two-parent middle-income households all over America get. Um and I had my own students told me, you held us to such a high standard, we had no choice but to succeed. And uh, to share a personal anecdote, I had a young, I did my research here in the last couple of years. I had a young man who was in his mid-20s who said, when you left the classroom, it was like my father walking out of my life. Wow. Yeah, you, and, it, it's amazing what what a difference it makes when you you earn a student's respect and establish that kind of a relationship you know where where it's beyond just oh they want to get this score on this quiz or whatever and it turns into like they respect you and they uh probably by that point know you respect them and they don't want to lose that mutual respect oh and i know it i've heard it i've heard it a lot of times I, I interviewed uh, 30, about 30 of my former students who were from ages of about 19 through their mid-20s and, and heard it over and over, family. I, I thought of school as being family. I come to school to be with my family. I looked, I looked at you as being one of those authority or those uh, parental figures in my life. I, I had five dads. They were my English teacher, my social studies teacher, my math teacher, you know, down the line. Um, and, and the other thing is teachers in, in most of those schools are taking the time to go to football games and basketball games and going to those educator appreciation days at the local church. And, and um, that's why they're succeeding. It's, 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 it's not a magic formula. It's just a lot of hard work. Uh, and those schools have better student-teacher ratios. Uh, you, we hear about how Year-round schooling works. There's no evidence that really supports that. We hear about how even the extended day doesn't usually work because it's not done right. Um, you know, all the things I hear about that, that are supposed to revolutionize education, when you look at the data, it doesn't work. Head Start programs, <laughs> et cetera, a lot of them are just flavors of the week. But getting teachers engaged with their students and, and creating a, a community does work. It, it simply does. Yeah, I mean all all the same sorts of stuff that uh John Taylor Ghetto did back when he was when he was still a teacher before he finally threw in the towel. Isn't isn't it interesting? And and I, I don't mean to take us on a brief aside, but isn't it interesting that all the all the revolutionary teachers that, that we hear about, Jaime Escalante, left public education, went back to I think he was from what, Bolivia? And, and went back to Bolivia and taught. 
Ron Clark, the guy that was in Harlem, is now has his own private school down in the Atlanta area. Isn't it interesting they all eventually leave public education and discuss and, and go do something else? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes perfect sense because the, the problem ultimately is, is a systemic one. It's the overall system itself that just has certain characteristics that, that make it so that a truly good teacher generally has to be like breaking rules and ruffling feathers to be a good teacher, which is kind of messed up. Like there's not many other jobs where that's the case where like in order to be a good carpenter, you've got to like break a lot of the basic rules of carpentry all the time and piss off other people in your field and all that. I mean, it's kind of strange. Well, and, and that was my experience. I, I had that principal who, who protected his teachers. I had the freedom to, to run my classroom the way I wanted to run my classroom. Uh, I didn't, I don't believe in corporal punishment anyway, so that's not even something I would entertain. But I was pretty strict. Uh, you know, the mythology is that, and I heard this when I first started teaching, you can't expect minority children to be quiet in the classroom. And, and I heard that so much, CJ, it pissed me off because it was racist. And I, I finally said, that's a lie. And you could have walked into my classroom on any given day and heard a pin drop in my classroom. So it's a myth. Um, and so he protected me. I was able to run my classroom the way I wanted to run it. I was able to be as strict as I wanted to. I could call 15 parents today and tell them that their kid did not perform well. And the big secret to that, by the way, is when their kid does perform well, you pick up the phone, you call the parents, and say, hey, Johnny did a great job today. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he knows when he does a good job, there's a good report home. And and so anyway, yeah. And then once that principal was, by the way, he was forced out of the school because he was protecting his teachers and retired in the middle of the year, which is always an indicator that something wasn't right. Um, once he left, then there was no longer that huge web of protection. And, and so teachers, you know, performance started to, to, to drop. Let's be perfectly honest. And that school that was, pretty much number one or two in our area uh, and any test metric then dropped and was no longer even an accredited school for a while. So um, it's, you're right. You have to break the rules to teach effectively teach. Yeah. And sometimes the the best, uh, well, probably not sometimes, probably all the time in teaching, the best supervisor is the person who gives you the elbow room and the leeway to do things the way you want to do it and then to figure out, you know, what works um, for what it is you're teaching, who it is you're teaching and what your own kind of personality style is. Cause you know, there's, there's approaches to teaching. I, I see teaching as a craft. And I think part of the problem with this giant bureaucratic dehumanizing Leviathan system that we have is that it completely misses that. And it, it tries to deal with teaching as if, it's no different than working on an assembly line. You know, you just, oh, you, you put this part over here, you push that button and there you go. And to me, teaching to, to truly be doing it in the, you know, idealistic meaning of the word, it's a craft. It, I, I agree. It, it's something like a, there's a lot of it that's not really quantifiable. There's a lot of it that's not replicable or modular and. That's just something that really bugs me is you've got this giant dehumanizing bureaucratic system that discourages um, individuality and craftsmanship amongst the teachers to a large extent, and that often 
one way or another uh, punishes or frustrates teachers who actually want to be uh, craftsmen, right? Takes all that creativity out by, by giving teachers prepackaged curriculum and micromanaging how they do everything. And then the system and the people at the top of it, they wonder why morale among teachers is so low. Why so many teachers, especially the better ones, want to get out of the field and go do something else. Well, you create a system where a lot of people go into education with these really good intentions and idealistic motives, you know, first and second year teachers all bright eyed and bushy tailed. Like <laughs> I'm going to be that teacher from the movie that, you know, makes a connection with the kids and whatever. And they go in there and then the system grinds them down and takes away unless, unless you're blessed with a good situation and a good supervisor who gives you the elbow room. But it, it tends to take away that, that creativity from the teacher and then, of course, they're going to have crappy morale and they're not going to try real hard and they're just going to go through the motions. I mean, what would happen if you if you did the same thing to another uh, person engaged in a creative job? You know, if you went in and and uh, didn't let a, an artist, you know, follow follow the way they wanted to do things and 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 practice their craft, of course, they would want to do something else after a while. I, I, I can talk to that personally. I realize it's anecdotal, but but it's it's my reality. I was on a performance plan after my first year of teaching. They, they put me on a performance plan. Uh, and, and part of it was, you know, I was a non-traditional teacher. I'd never paid my dues as a student teacher. I hadn't gone through a four-year education program. Uh, I, I had just come from the military. You know, I was, I was stern. And I, some of that was a mistake because, you know, I hadn't put in the hard work to have those relationships. And I was, you know, I was, I was older. I was in my forties, but I was that bright eyed, bushy tailed teacher that was coming to save the world. And, and we all get disabused of that notion, uh, eventually. Uh, and what's funny is once you're disabused of the notion, you actually learn how to teach. You probably are changing the world. But anyway, uh, no, I, 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 I was on a, I was put on a performance plan. My second year of teaching, I kind of got an attitude about it and said, uh, you know, the hell with them. I'm going to do what it takes to be successful. And, and if they fire me at the end of the year, I'll know I gave it my all. Uh, and I poured my heart into it. And at the end of the year, we, we have standardized testing here like every state does. Uh, at the end of the year, this was a paper-based test. The kids took the test. And I figured, uh, you know, either I was coming back the next year a hero or, or going to go find another profession somewhere. And I had over 90% of my students pass. Uh, and so all of a sudden – uh, my new principal, the guy I was talking about earlier, comes into the job and has his pre-school meeting with me and says, uh, anything else you want to talk about? I said, yeah, can I come off that performance plan? And he looked at me and said, what? <laughs> and, so, uh, and so he took me off the performance plan, obviously. And uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, there was another teacher at the same time, came to school the same way, and she had the identical experience and had amazing scores as well. And then so so. To me, the question is, are we forcing craftsmen? I like, I like that analogy. Are we forcing craftsmen out of their vocation? Uh, because they're not following the rules. Yeah, I think a lot of people with a lot of potential to be great teachers in the noble sense of the word, they either leave teaching entirely and just do something else that, you know, makes more money and isn't as frustrating or they figure out another arena in which they can still be a teacher, but without, um, all of the, all of the limitations and all of the, 
um, you know, sapping the creativity and the freedom out of it. You know, maybe they find a new, a new arena where they can kind of do their thing outside of that system, whether it's in some alternative school or whether it's in a, in a, just a different thing entirely. I don't know, podcasting, who knows? I, I wonder how many of your colleagues, uh, didn't come from public schools and, and thought it was easier or not easier that it was more rewarding to teach at those, uh, freshman and, and sophomore levels of college instead of, uh, high school. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, at least where I work, we get a fair amount of freedom. I mean, there's still limitations, like there's still, um, what are called course outlines, but they're, but they're kind of, at least for history, and I don't know how it is for every other, every other discipline, but it's pretty open ended, you know? I mean, the course outline for U.S. History 2 would be like, oh, you cover the, the Gilded Age and, uh, the Spanish American War and World War One. It's like, it's so open-ended that then I have actually still a fair amount of leeway to decide uh, in detail, like what are we really going to delve into, you know? And, and so that makes it better. Now there's, you know, still things about my job that limitations and things that frustrate me, but uh, you know, it, it's definitely, it's better. But one thing I've seen so far teaching college now for 11 years is that a lot of the negative trends in K through 12 tend to gradually creep up to us, you know, like what, I, what I see happening in K through 12, like 10 years later, it'll be creeping in into our stuff. So they're, they're turning K, they're turning into 13th and 14th grade. Yeah. That, that's the trend I see. I mean, it's, um, and, and perhaps at other colleges, it's even further along than it is where I am. I, I think where I am, it's like, we don't like if you had to work at a college, it's one, it's probably one of the better in, environments to work in just because like we don't have a lot of, um, interference by administration in, in what goes on in the classroom as long as we're basically doing our job, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, I just, I, I see some ominous trends on the horizon anyway. Oh, I, I think you're right. And, and you know, the reality is that you can trick the tests. I, I, and I'm not talking cheating. I'm not, I'm not talking overt cheating, which happens by the way in schools. And I, I've had students tell me that they saw cheating occur. Um, but you can trick the test in that it's really a rote memorization test. Uh, there are some more knowledge-based questions. But if you know basically what the high points and, – and the states give them to you. They have outlines of everything they're going to have on the test. You just – you find it. And so you can spend a month preparing students to pass the test, and then you can spend the other – eight, nine months teaching what you want to teach. As long as it relates to the material, you can pull it off because ultimately in, in, in Mike Kay's opinion, the job of a teacher is to teach people how to think. And so once you've taught a student how to think for themselves, then they'll learn that material. Um, and, and so uh, some of the greatest compliments I got CJ last year when I was doing my research was you taught me how to critically think. And to me as an educator, and you're an educator, you understand that's huge. That's a, a great compliment. Yeah, that that's always the larger kind of meta lesson that I'm trying to get across. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think, get across to everybody. I mean, there's certain students that for one reason or another, like they don't really want to be there or whatever. But um, the the ones who are, who are, have an open mind and are actually at least trying um, the, the larger meta lesson I'm always trying to get across to them in different ways in my history classes is critical thinking is, is truly critical thinking. And, 
to me, that's way more important than like if they remember, you know, all of the clauses of the Treaty of Versailles or something like that. It's like, you know, unless unless any of them go on to become uh, history majors or or whatever, they, yeah, they're probably not going to remember every last detail. But um, but to me, like that's just kind of that's trivia. And and the larger lesson, regardless of the subject matter, should be being able to think more effectively and and understand the world more accurately and those types of things. Wouldn't it wouldn't it be a wonderful world we lived in if most Americans understood that war usually is a failure to compromise and you didn't have the outrage we heard heard here in the last few weeks. Uh, regardless of the motivations, war is almost always a failure to compromise about something. Sure. Unless, of course, unless, of course, you know, someone comes to invade someone else. But um, why is it that the education system? Well, we both know why it is, but students are not getting that. They're not getting that critical thought that they're learned to. They've learned to repeat back what they've been taught, and not understand the motivations behind it. And and that is the disservice. And and that's certainly happening in middle income schools, uh, but it's happening even more in low-income schools. The students that face the most challenges aren't getting the right tools in their tool, toolbox to succeed. Right. Yeah. 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 And and I've run into it uh, uh, frustratingly over the years that I've been teaching because where I, where I teach, it's kind of a small town surrounded by rural areas. And there's a fair amount of poverty in the town where I teach. Um, and And there's, you know, I mean, there's, there's some, some nice neighborhoods and some fairly affluent students coming through my classroom, but there's also a lot of, um, people who are, you know, coming from a pretty impoverished background or at least lower middle class. And, you know, they've, most of them have gone through the, the local public schools before getting to me. And some of them have like internalized the lessons of public school in the sense that they get annoyed with me when I'm trying to go to like a deeper level on a topic and I'm trying to introduce like ambiguity and like, look, here's one way of looking at this historical problem. Here's another way it could be. And, and what they, they, some of them, some of them, what they want is they want me to like put up a PowerPoint with key terms and bullet points and then they'll copy it down and then there'll be a test later where they'll just regurgitate that crap verbatim. And like that, they've been trained for 12 plus years. They've been trained to think that's education. And now the, the students who haven't really internalized that or, you know, whatever, they're, maybe they're a little brighter. Maybe they just come from a background where critical thinking and questioning things is more encouraged or who knows what. But they, they love it. Like they, they find it refreshing when they get to my class and it's different from all the other history classes they've had. But then there, there's a certain number who like, they're pissed off. They're like, no, 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 no. We just want you to put up, you know, stuff for us to copy verbatim. Like that's, that's what we do. <laughs> You know? oh, we, we've all heard it. Is this going to be on the test? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we've all heard it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's frustrating. You know, if, if I teach the American Revolution, and, and by the way, I was a history teacher as well. If I teach the American Revolution and I start off by saying it, it was a smuggler's rebellion, uh, which you and I could probably make a very uh, sound argument. That's exactly what the American Revolution was, at least initially, was a smuggler's sure. rebellion. Uh, 
kids look at you and say, no, it was taxation without representation. Right. <laughs> to which the British always reply, well, how do you like your taxes now? Sure. <laughs> anyway, no, I, I, I mean, or, or if you say there were set, and, and this is not radical thought, and, and I hope, I'm sure most of your listeners know this is not radical thought, that there are essentially, even by the northern historians, seven principal causes of the American Civil War. That's stamped, by the way, I think I, who, who I'm quoting from. And when you start talking about those seven principal causes, the average student is going to look at you and say, no, no, slavery, slavery. <laughs> so uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and so imagine this in uh, the other disciplines. What happens to that five-year-old who comes in the classroom with a sense of wonder when he comes to your classroom, 18 years old, what did we do to destroy that sense of wonder? I don't know the answer. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's a system and, and some of them, some of them get broken, um, irreparably by it. And some of them get broken, but they're not, it's not irreparable. You know, they can kind of one way or another get sparked back to a position of curiosity and all that. Um, and then there's some that just don't get broken. You know, there's, there's, there's some that one way or another, whether they learn how to sort of play the game and get through or, or whatever, um, they, they kind of get through and you can tell like, oh, the machine didn't work on these ones. And those are usually the students who, um, get the most out of my class and who really kind of understand what I'm trying to tell them. And, and then the ones who at the end are like, you know, oh, this is the best class ever. I mean, what, one of the greatest compliments I ever had from a student is a young man who, he, who's kind of troubled. Like he wasn't, he wasn't a, a bad guy or a mean guy or anything like that, but like he was, he was just a little bit troubled. You could always tell. And he'd, he'd come talk to me during office hours and whatever. And after he got done taking a few classes with me, he, he came in and, and found me during my office hours and he shook my hand and he said, I just want to thank you for being the only teacher I've ever had who wasn't full of shit. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. I was like, that's, that's about the best compliment ever. You know, I feel, I feel like oh, I should put that on a coffee mug or something. So many teachers are though. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, my, my, one of my favorite memories and I had it while you were talking was, I had a classroom and somehow, you know, a lot of what happens in high school are kids get grouped by math ability. And so you'll get a class where you have a lot of struggling learners in that class and struggling learners tend to become, for lack of a better term, your behavior issues. And, and um, I can remember it was, it was a morning class. Uh, this was a high school class. And one of the kids and by kids, I mean, young men said, why do you care? And I said, because I like you guys. And he said, we're the bad kids. You don't like us. And one of the female students said, popped up and said, oh, no, no, Mr. K likes the bad kids because they have uh, spunk. She had heard me say this. And I liked those bad kids because they had spunk. And, and usually you could direct them to, you know, if you're teaching, a, again, bad kids, not my term, but if you're teaching a bad kid to be a rebel, they take to that like a fish takes to water. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I see it sometimes like when I'm talking about, you know, um, in, in my classes, like like bad stuff the government's done or kind of like, you know, the dark underside of American history or whatever. It's like sometimes the students that and, and I don't, you know, I don't get to see their high school records. So I don't know, you know, who's really had had the issues in school or not. But um, sometimes the students that I get the impression are kind of the more the more troubled ones who've probably uh, run into more trouble in, in K through 12. Like they're, they're actually quite receptive to, 
to a lot of the stuff where I'm like, Hey, you know, the system's kind of messed up and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, it kind of makes sense because you often hear people who later on become very successful and who by all measures seem to be quite brilliant. Many of them had a tough time in school. I mean, I didn't, I was, I was pretty good at playing the game. I was pretty good at figuring out how to kind of play the system. And I was at a, a, I was at a fairly affluent public school and I was in, you know, gifted and, and, and advanced placement and all that stuff. So, you know, I didn't have that, that tough of a time in, in school, even though I, I didn't exactly love it. But, um, you know, very often people have a tough time in school who then later go on to be successful. Now there's people who have a tough time in school and end up in prison too. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about maybe somebody like Thaddeus Russell, right. Who, who I'm sure you're right. probably familiar with. Like oh, yeah. he's, he's obviously whatever you think of him and his ideas, he's obviously a brilliant guy. And yet, you know, you hear him tell his story of how he did coming through school and it was horrible. It was horrible. And the same thing, um, as far as I can recall, Brett Vinod of, of school sucks, who I'm sure you, you're probably familiar I, with his I work. Listen as well. to his podcast. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Um, same deal where like he had a, he had a rough time in school, was not a very good student and whatever. And the system kind of made him feel like he wasn't very bright or whatever. And, you know, obviously he's, he's a very smart guy and, and has become very successful. No, I, I agree. And, and I, by the way, I'm a member of the GED to PhD program. I, I dropped out of school. Oh, okay. So similar <laughs> so, story. So I, I, my, my, uh, it, it, I just, to be perfectly, perfectly honest, uh, by about the end of sophomore year, I realized a lot of what we were learning was crap. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, and so, uh, I ended up, that's, that's how I ended up in the military, by the way, is, is, you know, I dug myself in one of those big holes. But those, those students who are bright but don't perform because they think the system is crap tend to be I, – I know I'm speaking in generalizations, but tend to be the more successful adults uh, because they're not swallowing everything they're spoon-fed. And, and so I was always kind of astounded – well, I shouldn't say astounded. I was always happily surprised when – some student who squeaked his way out of high school, got to college, woke up and graduate with a 4.0 uh, and told me that he argued with every teacher he had in college uh, about the facts of whatever, the American Revolution or, or the my favorite one to ping on was the Depression, what caused the Great Depression. But anyway, you know, and, and that's that's the exciting things. But um, we don't create enough of those rebels. You know, it's it's funny how in a area where we supposedly rebelled against conformity, uh, we have slowly slid down into being hyper conformist. So, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's actually, to be honest, it's pathetic. Let's just say it. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a lot of negative effects of having a, having a population that increasingly is like, n- not only not capable of genuine critical thinking, but is not even interested in it, you know, because, because the system has kind of just drummed it out of them. It's not that there was anything inherently wrong with them. Um, it's, it's that they got kind of, you know, broken by the system and, and never quite figured out a way to kind of become a self-motivated learner about something, you know, and, and eventually, I don't know. <laughs> eventually- well, well, it's, 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 you're, you're hitting, you're hitting, you're hitting my issue here. It's, it's, isn't it pathetic that, People protest 
players kneeling at a football game 30 years ago, they should have been protesting when their tax dollars were building stadiums for those millionaires. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Wouldn't it be happy? Wouldn't it imagine a world where people stopped watching football 30 years ago because we were paying for their stadiums? Sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, imagine a world where people got as angry in mass about what's happening in Yemen as they do about Donald Trump making an offensive tweet. I, I, and you know, the look in people's and adults, we're not talking kids now. The look in people's eyes when you tell them, you do realize that probably a million people are going to die before this is all over yeah. of starvation. Yeah. Yeah. Wake up, wake up. And, and that's, that's the frustrating thing. And, and it's not conservative. It's not liberal. It's not libertarian. It's not socialist. It, it's, it's facing the reality of, of some of these issues that I think most rational thinking people to get, can get together and say funding tyrants to kill people is probably not a good idea. And, and you tell people that, but, but we got to stop terrorism. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember those Yamanis coming over here, blowing up buildings. It's the guys who are blowing up the Yamanis who blew up our buildings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's insane. And, and I know we've gone way down the rabbit hole, but, um, but it is, but, it is connected because if people aren't, trained and encouraged in, in really thinking for themselves and doing their own research and, you know, not just regurgitating the talking points that they heard from the nice looking man on TV. Um, if, if, if they're not, then we kind of end up where we're at, you know, we kind of end up in a real life version of idiocracy. Oh no, no. It's, it, I, I always tell people, isn't it a shame that idiocracy was a documentary and not a, a movie. It's, yeah. it's reality. Uh, and and the frustrating thing is, is the answer to the problems that you and I are talking about wasn't some rational, well thought out program. I, I'm, I'm bringing us back to that full circle back to No Child Left Behind, where we thought there was a cookie cutter solution for this that had no basis in science, had no basis in craftsmanship. It was if we test kids, they'll learn better. That was the theory. And, and here's I did the research on NCLB. Um, I think 90, and my numbers may be off, but they're not off by much. 96 senators voted for that bill. And wow. I think, and I think it was 35 members of Congress or 30 some members of Congress voted against it. So it was a bipartisan bill that went through both the House and the Senate with overwhelming support from both sides of the aisle and, and the National Education Alliance, by the way. Um, now, there were individuals within that organization who were opposed to it, but, but they endorsed this bill, and their solution to the ills of American education was a test. That was the solution. So now you have a fifth-grade student where I live who – I don't know now. I've been, out of the, I've been out of the profession for two, three years now, but who four or five years ago was taking seven, six tests in two weeks. 650 or 100 question tests in two weeks. And that's another form of that state sponsored child abuse that I talked about earlier. Uh, yeah. you're, you're putting a, a young child, a young child under incredible stress and, and putting him in a high stakes testing environment where teachers salaries and evaluations depend on the outcome of that test. That's yeah, and you, you hear stories about these young kids, you know, still in elementary school having like nervous breakdowns because of the the amount of testing and the pressure that they're under. I mean, it's really messed up. And we don't let them go out to 
play recess for more than 20 minutes in an entire day. Oh, sure. So they're, they're getting no time away. Uh, you have the teachers under great pressure. And, and, and before, CJ, before any of your listeners think this is sour grapes, my students always scored 90% or better on every standardized test they took. And that's not me bragging. That's just me saying I'm criticizing a system I was very good at adhering to, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 this critique is coming from someone who did well in this system. It's, it's, it's insane that we think the measure of a child's, what a child learned is a multiple choice test administered at a computer terminal. It, it's, it's, it's nuts. Now, some, you know, some states did a really great job and they decided the way they could save history or science was to have a test for those too. Uh, other states got rid of history and science curriculums. And I wonder what the repercussions will be of that. So, yeah. Um, it, yeah. And, you know, one aspect of this story that I don't think gets enough attention is the, um, the educational company industrial complex where, I mean, first off, I mean, one of the biggest rackets I'm familiar with is the textbook racket, which Amen. is a giant racket for both K through 12 and for college. It's just insane. Amen. I mean, it's right up there with like Lockheed as far as just like, you know, profiting off of a, of a dysfunctional uh, system. But then on top of it, a lot of those same companies, as a matter of fact, who are in the textbook industrial complex, they're also in the testing industrial complex and they actually make and administer these standardized tests and they make a ton of money. And then you find out, oh, the governors and Congress people and whoever who are the ones always voting yes on more standardized tests. Oh, they're getting campaign contributions from the companies that make and administer the tests. I mean, it's just as dumb and obvious if people were, you know, critically thinking as like Lockheed giving money to congressmen who then vote yes on every war that comes down the pike. No, there, there is an educational industrial complex. And, and I know for a fact that the people who wrote the standardized test here in my state are the exact same people who sold us the textbooks and, and states that think they're being really edgy and rebellious to say, we're not going to have common core. Common core is in your textbooks, whether you voted for it or not, it's in your textbooks, it's in your tests because they wrote the tests. And, and so, and, and you know, I'm not saying, I'm not going to say that I think common core was good or bad. I, I've read both sides of the argument. Uh, you know, what's bad is, Lawyers passing laws that kids have to adhere to this nonsense and be taught in this nonsense. That's what's bad. But, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, the whole system is, is corrupt from top to bottom and it's the teachers who get the brunt of it. Um, and I'm not, there are bad teachers. I think CJ, you probably agree with that, right? Sure. There are bad teachers out there, but I've seen a lot of teachers who come to school at seven in the morning. They leave school at six o'clock at night. They take home a stack of papers. They're there every month of the year. They're in their classrooms and some during summer break. Uh, they're taking classes constantly. And, and, you know, in a free market system, those would be your superstars. They, they'd be signing the big bonuses like LeBron does, you know, sure. <laughs> they're the effective teachers. And, um, and the sad reality is if you and I were to walk in their classroom and say, you know, if we had a privatized system, you'd be getting paid big bucks. They'd laugh us out of their room and say, well, we're nuts. So, sure. so they're, they're married into a system that's abusing them while rewarding those who aren't rewarding the others at the same level that they're being rewarded who are not nearly as effective or work as hard. It, it's, it's an insane system. And, and 
going back to the historical reality, you know, when communities controlled their school, when they didn't like something, they could deal with it. Now you don't like it. Go talk to your go talk to your congressman, right? Because he's going to fix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many <laughs> things are done first by the state capital, but then when you when you trace it beyond that, you find out even the state government in most states isn't even all that independent and is largely just dancing to DC's tune. So, I mean, it's just it's so far removed from the ability of like an average parent or an average teacher to, to really affect the system. But um, in, in general, like any, any other thoughts you have as far as, you know, based on your research and your experience, um, what works and, and is there anything that could be done to kind of improve uh, both schooling and education in America? Well, I, you know, I always, I always tell young parents, homeschool your children. Please homeschool your children. Uh, those first six years are the most critical years. And, and if you don't have the time, go to a private school that you personally vetted. Not all private schools are all that either. You, ha- you have to get in the classroom and look. I've seen some classical schools that are doing really amazing stuff. Uh, I've seen some uh, uh, Montessori programs that, that turn out great students who, who are using critical thought. Uh, if that's not an option for you because you're one of those um, – lower income folks, and you have the potential for school choice, get in those classrooms, look around, and when your student gets home, even if you don't know how to read, make that kid sit there and read. I I don't care what they read. I I tell this to people all the time. You know, we can complain that the system needs to go away, and and if CJ and Mike were in charge, the system would be gone. Um, I don't see that happening. It's only a fantasy. Let's say that it's going to go away uh, anytime soon. Um, Right now, I know in this state, 70% of the state budget goes to education. The, the feds are, are contributing, but they have disproportionate influence on the system compared to the dollars they're putting in. So we're stealing from you and me, sending money to D.C. so it can be brought back to us to, to influence the system. So what can you do to, to, to help after-school community programs in your, in your local church, at your local boys club, or wherever uh, – Taking the time for, for, for folk to teach young people who, who aren't getting good education in school. Uh, a lot of your listeners are very bright and, uh, have unique, uh, ways of looking at the world. Um, can you imagine if, I don't know, a hundred of them went out and just started to volunteer at their local after school program and start teaching young people and, and teaching them how to think? Not, not necessarily material, but how to think, how to, how to take notes. Kids don't know how to take notes. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you 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 talked earlier. You put it up on a PowerPoint slide. They they don't want you to move the slide because they got to write everything down on your PowerPoint slide. Uh, yeah. Tried that once. It was a big failure, by the way. So I got rid of PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah, I hate PowerPoint. I never use it. <laughs> I do too. I do too. Um, but no, I, I mean, what can we do? I, I would love to see some good anarchists, minarchists, uh, uh, paleo conservatives get into school boards and say enough's enough. You know, push back, be that rebellious kid that we were talking about earlier, but be the adult about it and get in school board and say, no, 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 no. We're not going to give the superintendent a 30 percent pay increase and a fifteen hundred dollar a month car allowance uh, because she hasn't done anything. Uh, and we didn't even touch on the subject of these big downtown offices that every public school system has in America. Oh, sure. You have 400 people sitting in an office building. What the hell do they do? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's across, that's across the board. It's the same thing at most colleges and universities, like the, the administrator and bureaucrat to teacher ratio has exploded in the last few decades. Well, and that's, that's how they trick the taxpayer. They'll say, we have 14 educators for every student. They don't tell you that, um, or 14 students to every educator. They don't tell you that there are 400 educators sitting downtown out of the 4,000 uh, teachers you have. So 10% of them are sitting at a desk. And unfortunate part is the hardest working people in those buildings are the uh, custodial folks and the secretaries. So sure. It's, it's, and again, I'm speaking with broad brush. Uh, I'm sorry for all those folks in those jobs who work hard, but that's the broad brush view I have as an educator. And, and I'm sure you've seen it in your school too. And, and I think if most rational people sat back and, and, and thought about it, They've seen the guys who are watching the YouTube videos on their phone during the workday. Come on. Yeah. We all have. It, it's reality. But um, I look. the other thing is, is the charter school movement where it's legal, and it's not legal in all 50 states, but where the charter school movement is legal, that is an, a, a small revolution, if you will, in education. Um, groups of educators of like mind who may agree with us uh, for the most part – can now band together and divert some of those tax dollars and create a school that does teach critical thought. And, and I, I don't like taxes. Um, in fact, taxation is theft. But as long as this is this, these are the cards we're being dealt with. Why not beat them at their own game and, and start a school? And it's something I've been contemplating since I left education. Um, I have the pedigree on paper, and wouldn't it be wonderful if fifteen or fifteen of us all got together in this local area? And decide, well, charter schools aren't legal in my, my state, but, um, 15 people in your area got together and said, that's it. We're starting a school. And instead of starting the school in suburbia, start the school in the inner city or in rural, the rural poor areas and beat them at their own game. Again, I'm not, I'm not condoning theft, but if they're stealing from us already, why can't we put some of it to good use? Sure. Yeah. I mean, people, I, I think have to be, have to be strategic and tactical and kind of work, um, work out what'll work best for, for them and what they can do the most good with given the fact, you know, of how things are and, and how the systems are and everything. We're not in Libertopia. So you, you gotta, I mean, I still drive on the, on the interstate, you know. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to drive on the interstate as well. I, I'm not, you know, I'm as anarchist as they come, but. We have to do what we have to do within the system. And uh, we, you know, CJ, we're kind of conditioned too, aren't we? We think that I can't start that school, right? Sure. It's, it's, well, why do I want to compete with the public school? Or more, more importantly for folks like us, it's really why do I want to deal with the government to start that school? Right. And I don't want to deal with those idiots either. But um, I don't know why I self-censor on your, on your podcast, by the way. But uh I, I, I don't want to deal with those idiots either, but um, wouldn't it be wonderful to beat them at their own game? Yeah, so. yeah. And, you know, there there's some people who have more talent for that that particular type of stuff, you know, of gaming the system and um, who, who have an infinite amount of patience. And, you know, I think I think every individual has to make their own call as to, um, you know, what their particular talents and temperament are and then kind of what they can where they can they can accomplish the most good of, of one form or another. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I agree. And, you know, the, the truth is, and you alluded to it earlier, is the system wears people out. After 10 years, I was worn out. And so the thought of starting another school, quite frankly, I just don't have the 
the heart for it right now. Uh, but I would be a hanger on of somebody younger and more energetic who wants to go start another school. And, and I would even come in and, and help them with their school. You know, it's, it's, well, maybe I'm full of shit. And, and maybe uh, those folks who, who give you a couple dollars to run this podcast can later on, they can attack me in your room and I'll, 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 I'll listen to what they have to say because there's got to be a better way. And I'm not the smartest guy in America. So if someone out there knows a better way, please tell me, uh, what do you, what's it? Five bucks to get in your room CJ? Yeah, five a month. So come in the room and tell me I'm full of shit, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll take all comers for now. You know, the, the sad reality of this this particular episode is we're not going to really leave with a whole lot of of uh, pearls of wisdom. Uh, the pearl of wisdom I think we offer, at least I offer, is the system is screwed completely up, and and the people that it serves the worst are the people that can least afford to have a bad system, and so. Um, and, and we didn't even touch on the fact that we're telling these kids that every single one of you can go to college. And so the little guy whose dream was to be an automotive mechanic is being told he needs to go to college. We send him to college. He flunks out of college after two years and he has thirty or forty thousand dollars of debt. <laughs> and, so, and then we're surprised when he's caught on the street corner, corner selling weed so he can pay his dad gone student loans. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so it's a uh, racket, like Smedley Butler said about war. It's a racket. Well, education is now a racket. The media is a racket. Is there anything that's not a racket? <laughs> I don't know. Podcasting. So, yeah, and, and I don't. And, and you know, on the on the positive, I, I guess we should probably end. Unless you have other questions, but but I can probably end this on a little more positive note. <laughs> okay. The positive that I have is there are people out there who are revolutionizing education in their own little way. And, and there are teachers who are, who are uh, saying bump the rules. I'm going to do it my way. And, and they're turning out students that, that have critical thought and, and they may not go to college and do it, but they go into life and, and, you know, they run their own businesses or uh, I have one who's a merchant seaman right now who, who's doing real, really well as a merchant seaman. I have another one who's a counselor down in Atlanta area working in the prisons. Um, I have students that own their own taxis, work driving for Lyft or, or Uber, who are making some money. Um, have a couple of them, by the way, that uh, that joined the Libertarian Party. Well, they'll learn, but it's a good first step. <laughs> and so anyway, and, and I'm not the only one. There are a lot of educators out there doing it, and, and a lot of them are doing it in those magnet schools I talked about earlier or, or the charter schools. And so there are some small revolutions going on of, of 10, 15 teachers, 30 teachers uh, or even in singular teachers in, in regular uh, public schools who say, no, you will write a 10-page term paper. I don't care what the school district says. If you want to pass my class, you will leave here with a 10-page term paper done at the end of your freshman year. And if you don't, you're going to get an F. And, and I know that teacher, by the way. That's a real person. And she has a parade of former students who come back to her while they're in college saying, thank you for teaching me how to write a paper. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have gotten through my first year of college. So so there are teachers out there revolutionizing the world. And, and if your teacher, your kid's teacher is one of those teachers, bring them a plate of cookies, please. <laughs> but anyway, uh, no, I, I seriously, bring them a plate of cookies. <laughs> that's how I gained 30 pounds, by the way, teaching. But that's another story. Uh, anyway, no, it, it, it's there are that you can if someone out there is considering a career in education, be prepared for the crap, but also understand you can have your own little private revolution in your classroom. But certainly make sure you have some legal protections because nobody in the school system is going to support you. Nobody. 
when you when you break the rules. You either get away with it or they're going to catch you and they're going to try to come after you. But you can still have a – you know, revolutionaries sometimes get hurt. That's just the bottom line. So Yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to be smart. You have to be a guerrilla scholar warrior. Amen. Amen. And people who listen to this show and listen to Tom Woods and, 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 and listen to uh, Thaddeus Russell and, and listen to all those folks, Michael Malice, come on. They're, they are our revolutionaries. They really are. And I hope that some of them think about going out there and fighting. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the solutions can't be top down. The solutions have to be bottom up. Well, you know, you and I were discussing Brian McClanahan earlier, and we may not agree with everything he says, but his whole think local, act local. Sure. That should be a mantra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, any, any, uh, parting questions for me, or do you think we've pretty much hit every nail? Oh, no, I, I think we've, uh, covered plenty. And, um, I just want to say, Mike, uh, it's been great talking to you and uh thanks very much for coming on the dangerous history podcast and you know i'll turn it over to you if there's if there's any last things that uh, you want to say that we hadn't got to that we hadn't gotten to or anything like that no i i, I first i want to thank you for this opportunity i want to thank you for your show uh, i recommend your show uh with folks all the time as you know i'm a supporting listener I, I i throw a few bucks every month your way i get a lot of value for that uh you know I wouldn't have known about the draining of, of the swamp in Florida, the swamps in Florida, if it wasn't for you. I mean, I mean, I knew it happened, but I didn't know the, the intricate history of that. I, I will tell you this, and, and from one educator to another, your series on the American Revolution is probably, in my opinion, the finest thing you've ever done. And, and if your listeners have not gone back in the archives and listened to that American Revolution series, they are missing out. It is amazingly well done, and, and the fact that you. You bring up folks like Nathaniel Green, who most Americans have never heard of. <laughs> I, I have to commend you for that. You are, you're an outstanding history educator, and uh, you have your own little private revolution, and you're, you're carrying on in your classroom, and there's no doubt about that. So that's that's it. <laughs> well, th- thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. And um, thanks thanks again for, for reaching out to me and for coming on the show. I've enjoyed the conversation very much, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy it as well. I hope so, and and thank you again, and I'll see you on Facebook. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best 
most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. (laughs) 